Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a geriatrics expert tells about a potential treatment for disruptive agitation in people with Alzheimer's disease. It may help people with neurological problems such as post-traumatic stress disorder, certain behavior problems and mood problems, and it has been looked at for managing agitation in people with Alzheimer's disease. A stroke neurologist goes over the most typical symptoms of stroke. In general, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a negative symptom. So sudden subtraction of function, there's your sign, go to the emergency room. And he'll walk us through the treatments for various types of strokes. The delivery of care for the majority of strokes is the delivery of this clot-busting drug. Um, and so the earlier you can, you can make that determination, then the better it is for you. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll learn about the typical symptoms of stroke and why it's important to react quickly. Then, a stroke neurologist will go over treatments for the most common strokes. But first, we'll hear about a new study of a blood pressure medication that may help people with Alzheimer's disease who have disruptive agitation. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People with Alzheimer's disease can develop disruptive agitation, and some of those symptoms can cause even more distress than the loss of memory for the person and for their caregivers. A study is underway at Upstate to determine if a particular blood pressure medication can be used for treatment, and I'm talking about that with Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's overseeing that study. She's the chief of geriatrics at Upstate and a former president of the American Geriatrics Society. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Brangman. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start with a definition of disruptive agitation. What is that? So agitation is one of the behaviors that is grouped uh, in people with Alzheimer's disease, and it can occur in 80 to 90% of the patients. And it is excessive activity, either physical movement, such as pacing, or it could be um, striking out or hitting. It could be excessive verbalization, either yelling or screaming. It can be aggressive behavior, hitting or verbally aggressive, saying mean things to caregivers. It's a group of behaviors that's very, very disruptive and stressful. It's stressful for the patient who's experiencing it, and it's also stressful for the caregivers or the family members who are taking care of the person. Does a person with this agitation have it all the time, or does it come and go? It really depends on the person. Uh, it's, it can be intermittent. Uh, there is a, a, a phenomenon called sundowning, where towards the end of the day, people with, with Alzheimer's disease can get more agitated. And we don't quite understand the phenomenon, but it seems to be related to changes in light perception. And during the end of the day, we see people maybe start to fidget and pace, Maybe they scream or yell, or they're very hard to approach. And it can be very disruptive because it's often near dinner time and then people may not wanna eat uh, or they can't sleep or relax and the evening can really get started in a very negative way. So what is currently done or what do you currently uh, recommend to people to help control this? Well, it's a very individual process and we have to look at the patient and what else is going on with them. Uh, we always try to try to try a non-pharmacologic or a non-drug approach first. So a lot of this is based on education of the caregiver. If we can figure out what the triggers are, sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. It could be the approach to the patient, how something is presented to them. Sometimes we don't know what the trigger is, and that can be just as challenging. We can try things such as putting on some bright lights, closing the curtains, maybe putting on some music that might be soothing, 
offering a snack or a treat that they might enjoy. Sometimes we can work on distracting the person and bringing up uh, maybe a pleasant memory or activity or something else that they can focus on. Uh, but sometimes that does not work. And if the agitation gets to the point where the person can harm someone else or harm themselves, then we have to start to look at other interventions. Now, I think you said 80 to 90% of people with Alzheimer's may exhibit disruptive agitation. What about the 10 or 20% who, who don't? Do we know what to attribute that to? So we do not understand all of this. We know that um, Alzheimer's disease is a brain disease and nerve pathways are breaking down. And in some brains, when these nerve pathways break down, it leads to overstimulation of some parts of the brain that can cause this agitation, but not everyone gets it. Some people have trouble sleeping, some people sleep a lot. So it is very hard to predict, and that is one of the challenges of taking care of people with Alzheimer's disease, because we can't do a one-size-fits-all model. We have to really tailor our approach to that person. Now, the study that you're overseeing is with the blood pressure medication Prazosin. What can you tell us about this medication? So Prazosin is a medication that has been around for a long time, and it's been used to treat high blood pressure. It's also been helpful in men who have a big prostate, which might limit uh, urine flow, and it helps to improve flow um, from the bladder. It is a very effective blood pressure medication. But for a number of years, there has been research that shows that it may help people with neurological problems, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, certain behavior problems and mood problems. And it has been looked at for managing agitation in people with Alzheimer's disease. Are there side effects to be aware of? Well, because it's a blood pressure medication, it can lower your blood pressure. And that is something that has to be watched very carefully, especially looking at what happens to your blood pressure when you stand up. Now, normally when we stand up, after a couple of quick seconds, our body adjusts and it increases blood flow to the brain. And uh, with this blood pressure medication, all blood pressure medications, may reduce that blood flow to the brain and someone could get dizzy. So one of the things that we do when we're treating high blood pressure in older adults or any adult for that matter is to check the blood pressure in two positions to see if it drops too low when they stand up. So for this trial, one of the things that we're gonna do very closely is follow blood pressure, taking the blood pressure when they're sitting and also taking the blood pressure when they're standing. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate's Chief of Geriatrics, Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's overseeing a study of a blood pressure medication that may be able to help people with Alzheimer's disease who have disruptive agitation. So tell us about the study. Is it like one that researchers from Seattle completed in 2015? So we're one of eight academic centers in the country that are that's looking at this issue. And what we're going to be doing is um, giving people with uh, disruptive behaviors, and by that we mean behaviors that occur at least five times a week, and that they are causing disruption, interrupting care, causing stress to the caregiver and or the patient. And we're going to be giving them uh, prazosin or a placebo. And as you know, a placebo is the dummy drug. It's not the real medication. These patients are going to be randomly assigned. That means we won't know what they're getting. And we're going to use um, a computer mechanism to pick who is going to get the drug and who is going to get the placebo. With this particular study, two out of three people will actually be getting the study drug. So that um, usually it's a one-to-one -one ratio where one person gets the drug and one person gets the placebo. But with this 
particular trial, it's going to be a two to one ratio. Now, in terms of volunteers, does age or gender or race or geographic location, are you looking for diversity in all of those categories or? Well, well we're always looking for diversity at, uh, at all times because we want real world information about people who have this disease. And this is a disease that affects every, every person, gender, race, it is mostly a disease of aging, but we do see people who are in their 50s and 60s with Alzheimer's disease. Is there anything that would disqualify someone from participating? So this study would exclude people who have any psychiatric problems such as schizophrenia, if they have Parkinson's disease or maybe a brain tumor, if they've had any unstable medical illness like heart failure or chest pain or a recent heart attack, they wouldn't be eligible for this study. Also, if they have any infectious illness or any severe respiratory problems or cancer, they would not be eligible for this study. We do know that as we get older, there are other medical problems that tend to occur with Alzheimer's disease, uh, but as long as those are stable, in general, the, the person would be considered for this trial. We do have a process at the beginning for determining who is eligible. So if there's any question, we would ask people to call and then we can be more specific depending on what that person's problems are. Let me give that phone number, uh, 315-464-3285, and also the email address, Jerry Research, G-E-R-I Research at upstate.edu. But I also want to ask you, what's involved in the study? Uh, if someone signs up for this, how many visits or what, what are they in for if they sign up for this? Well, it's about 13 visits and um, the study partner has to be someone who is either living with the patient probably living with the patient and has very close contact with the patient. So clearly if somebody has advanced um, Alzheimer's disease and behaviors, they are generally not living alone. This is somebody who really needs a dedicated study partner. And the study partner will be taught how to check the blood pressure. We will be giving out uh, equipment so that they can check the blood pressure. Um, we will also be meeting with the study partner on regular intervals to see how things are going, uh, to ask questions so that we can get an idea of whether there's a response to the medication or not, uh, or whether um, their behaviors are still escalating or bad, and we do have a rescue medication that we are able to give for people uh, who are having ongoing behaviors so that we we have close contact with the study partner. And as you may know, caregivers, the people who are providing the care are often very isolated. They often cannot get out of the house or do anything that they need to do because so much of their time is spent taking care of this person. So this study gives that caregiver that extra support and contact, which may be very helpful. During the trial, how do you determine whether the prazosin is, is helping or, or how quickly might someone see that there's an effect? So this is all part of the study and this is what we're going to determine. There are special assessment tools that have been shown to be useful in uh, evaluating behaviors and we will be administering those tools and that will give us information. We will collect this information and then we look at it at the end of the study. How do you uh, get consent from a patient who has Alzheimer's disease to participate in something like this? Do you rely on their caregiver mostly or? So yes, this is clearly a vulnerable population. So we have to work very closely with their healthcare proxy, that's the person who makes decisions for them in their place. It is usually their caregiver, or if it's another family member, we talk with the family member who has the ability to give permission in place of the patient. 
Now, will participants be able to continue taking the medication after the trial ends? So after the end of the trial, we will discuss follow-up care. And that all depends on a number of factors. And we're trying to follow the national protocol. So there is a, a period where we don't know who's getting the drug and who's getting the placebo. And the, the blinded period where we don't know what's going on, which drug they're getting is broken at the end. And then we discuss the follow-up care at that point. So someone who's in the study who got the placebo, they would also discuss follow-up care. Would they potentially be able to get the medication? Uh, it really depends. And it's, it's very dependent on the person. But in general, when the study ends, um, the medication isn't given anymore. However, this is a medicine that is available right now. It's been approved. Um, it can be used in any way that's helpful once it's approved by the FDA. So that will be the bigger discussion is, is this a medication that we want to keep administering? Well, let me remind listeners the phone number to call if they're interested is 315-464-3285. And the email is jerryresearch, G-E-R-I, research at upstate.edu. Now, what information do people need to have available with them when they make the call or when they send the email? What do you need to know up front? Well, we want to know if they have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. We want to know if the person is bed bound, if they are bed bound and do not get out of bed, uh, they would not be eligible for the study. It's okay if they're in a wheelchair. We would want to know if they have um, prior problems with blood pressure control, particularly low blood pressure. Uh, we want to make sure that the patient is able to have some conversation or some language. This is a way of determining how severe their Alzheimer's disease is. Uh, and then we have to review labs and their medical history. So all of that is uh, discussed with the caregiver when they call. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's the Chief of Geriatrics at Upstate and a former president of the American Geriatrics Society. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, May is National Stroke Awareness Month. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Effective stroke treatments are keeping more Americans alive and helping to prevent disability from stroke. Part of the key is early action. May is National Stroke Awareness Month, and I'm pleased to be speaking about this with Dr. Hesham Massoud. He's an assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology at Upstate Medical University and a member of the Upstate University Hospital Comprehensive Stroke Team. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Masood. Hi, thanks for having me back. Now, most strokes happen when a blood vessel in the brain becomes narrowed or blocked, but some happen when a vessel ruptures. Are the symptoms the same for both types? Yeah, uh, so, so a stroke is this broad term that encompasses two big mechanisms of how a stroke can happen. Because stroke just refers to you know, this broad idea that there's brain damage and the brain damage is related to this vascular part of the brain, you know, meaning the pipes, uh, you know, be that the arteries, uh, the veins, or the tiny little vessels in between. And so that can be either a blockage dysfunction, right, or a narrowing inside the pipe, or it can be something wrong with the integrity of that pipe. And then that can be a series of things, or it can be malconnections. So whenever the dysfunction happens, um, it, can, it can just really manifest in terms of where that part of the brain is. Uh, and what its function would be. And so then when the dysfunction occurs, it looks the same. That's why, you know, our window uh, is really the, the in, into that early pathway of where you get designated in terms of your care, and it's very divergent, is the head, uh, head CT. 
so the heads the head CT is is what gets you this uh, um, information up front because blood is very obvious on a head CT because head CTs deal with density. Blood is denser. Um, and so you can see it as bright. It's very easy to, uh, to, it's hard to miss, I should say. And then, and so once the, that's excluded, then you go on this, uh, you go on the, on that, on the separate care path. So the head CT, that's a CAT scan. And that's the CAT scan. Exactly. Yeah. So a person has to be in the emergency room or hospital to have that done. That's why it's so important that people get this, um, you know, presentation to the emergency room as quickly as possible, because it's not only, you know, once you get excluded uh, from having, you know, the bleeds, which are, you know, not as many as in terms of your probability, if we're thinking about probabilities, your probability is higher uh, in, you know, 80% uh, is going to be the type where it's a blockage where so it's lack of blood flow. You know, it's only 20% of the cases are going to be, you know, where it's a, where it's a bleed. Um, and then, you know, you know, you got to figure that that ratio kind of changes a little bit based on the age group. You know, as we get older, then you're more likely to see, you know, one thing versus another. If you're if you have one risk factor that's weighted differently in this direction, then then you're going to more likely have this type versus the other, you know, different different, you know, like high blood pressure or diabetes or cholesterol, you know, is more likely going to give you one type that lends itself towards, you know, a certain uh, a type of stroke, um, so 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 there, that's uh, that's why um, it, you know it, it really is important that um, that that you get that information early so that you can get on the care path um, because the delivery of care for the majority of strokes is the delivery of this clot busting drug, um, and so the earlier you can you can make that determination, then the better it is for you and that's why you see some you know you may hear hear about um the mobile stroke units which have the cat scan in the ambulance and so you're able to get that on the field and then you know if you if you get that on the field and you have a drug there and you have a, a facetime uh a network essentially where you know you can do telemedicine uh then you can make that decision on the field and that's even shorter than than the than the drive-in time to the hospital so so it's really important uh, that we identify things early. Well, let's talk about those symptoms. Um, how common are visual disturbances during a stroke? You know, it's um, you know, I'd have to look at the the, the actual numbers. I'd say in my practice, um, I, I expect to see you know maybe one or two uh, on the week that I'm that I'm uh, uh, attending at a time. So fairly common, um, but it will be visual symptoms that are characteristic. Uh, uh, characteristically, I should say, attributed to the 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 pipes, right? The arteries system uh, uh, or the venous system, and so uh, you know the one that we see in in the majority of strokes being the the types of strokes where it's not a lot of blood. You know, there's lack of blood flow, and so that's the damage mechanism. You you tend to see um, you know parts of the field, you know, so like half of each eye. If each eye has its own field of vision. Then and you split that into quadrants. Then you can have everything off to the left of that field, or to the right of that field, uh, or to the upper half and the right, or the lower half and the right. You know, you can sort of split split it up into these four parts, and then have it, you know, go off to the tendency of, you know, the left of or the right of each vision. That very classically localizes to the brain. Um, if you have a sudden vision loss, that's to one side, um, you know, to one eye where it really is. So they'll say classically, like, hey, it'll be like a curtain coming down. Well, you know, anything suddenly where the where it comes out is basically a stroke until proven otherwise, uh, which is why I always tell people it's really just about things happening suddenly, you know. So, you know, a sudden subtraction of function you know, that's what apoplexy means, right? That's the old definition for stroke, you know? Uh, you know, so so just a sudden dysfunction uh, of your brain is basically going to be what? It's most likely going to be a problem with the feeding mechanism of the, of the brain. Because once you block the, 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 um, the delivery system, then that dysfunction is going to happen pretty quickly. Uh, and if you have your delivery artery, you know, or your pipe, or your draining pipe, you know, your vein, having a problem that also is going to give you some symptoms. Now, the venous side is sort of interesting and, and, and in the sense that it can be more of a chameleon. 
um, but that that tends to be its own own uh, own own animal. Um, but the arterial the arterial side is very obviously sudden in onset, and so so you do well, uh, probably you know from a probability sense to to just assume a stroke if a patient comes to you and say suddenly I can't, and then you know insert function here, you know. Uh, uh, so, so, so that's the important uh, point I think for for people uh, in terms of uh, recognition. What about headaches? Have you had patients um, where that was the primary sign? The big thing that you know that you always want to mention if if you're talking about stroke and headaches is you want to talk about a sudden severe headache being something that really requires you to go to the emergency room. You know, so if you have a sudden headache. That's really severe and then, you know, classically, this is, you know, uh, uh, characterized as being the, you know, quote, unquote, worst headache of your life. And the reason it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's uh, described as that is because that's what people say, you know, uh, so suddenly your brain is exploding and that's what it feels like come to the emergency room because that can be really, really be a type of stroke, uh, like a bleed. Uh, of a of a specific part uh, of, you know, like a, like an aneurysm, which is a dysfunction of the pipe. Where there's a, a weakening in the wall, and then that weakening leaks blood. You know that's where the aneurysm is. The aneurysm is really this weak part of the artery, and so the weak part of the artery can leak blood. Uh, and if it does that, when that blood touches that space that it's in, it's exquisitely painful, and it's exquisitely painful the millisecond it happens. And so that's why you know people say, "Hey, well, I get headaches. You know, what should I do? Um, and how do I how do I differentiate? You know, especially if you already have an aneurysm." The, the big, the big, the big thing I say is I'm always a conservative person. So anything like, you know, typically you can suss out what's a benign headache, you know, meaning what's an okay headache versus what's a severe headache. But I tend to go on the lower threshold if you have an aneurysm in terms to, uh, um, to consider things and, and do the extra workup. But in general, for the population, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it's this sudden intense headache, you know, um, and so, uh, so because because it's exquisitely painful uh, when when blood gets to that space. Um, so when you say headache, that that makes me think of aneurysm. There are other headaches that can be attributed as well to strokes. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with stroke specialist Dr. Hesham Masood. He's an assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology at Upstate, and we're going over the symptoms of stroke. Now, the acronym FAST, F-A-S-T, is used to help people remember the most common warning signs. F stands for face. So how does a stroke cause someone's face to, to droop? It really comes down to the, the, the concept of, you know, the, the homunculus man, you know, which is the representation of our body on, uh, you know, the part of the brain that has to deal with you know, motor function, you know, moving your arms and legs, and, and that includes, you know, moving the muscles of your face, um, you know, um, and then there's also representation of your body, uh, which is the sensory representation, you know, uh, uh, and so that 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 representation, uh, you know, uh, is sort of um, uh, commensurate with, with how fine or detailed that part of the body needs to be. So, for instance, the the hands are going to be have a really really big amount of real estate that they claim on that part of the brain because you know the the hands really separates us from the lower order organisms in terms of having a a tool uh, that we can use you know with the dexterity of the hands and the, and the and the ability to do a fine um, sensory di discrimination um, and so you know the same thing with the lips so the lips you know have to be pretty sensitive right. Um, and as a result, you'll see the homunculus and has really large lips because the representation on the brain of the lips and the mouth is really large. Same thing with the tongue, because obviously we have language, so on and so forth. Uh, but you'll find that the trunk, you know, like, uh, you know, like the torso, you know, the proximal parts, like the shoulders and your hips, that area, that's going to be kind of small, you know, because you're talking about gross movements in sort of planes. Uh, uh, and so that's not as um, as fine tuned, obviously. You mentioned homunculus man. What what is that? So the homunculus man is essentially a graphic representation of of the different parts of your body in terms of how much real estate uh, those parts take up on the surface of your brain. That that is the part uh, of that function. So that the big you know the big two being motor function and then the other being sensory function. 
So the face has this big representation. So if you have a stroke, uh, you know, where are clots going to go, right? Where if we're talking about the predominant causes of strokes, which are these ischemic strokes, you know, the strokes from this dysfunction, a lot of times it's a clot. You know, the clot plugs up this artery. And, you know, if you have a big representation of this face, then that's going to have a bigger artery. And so it's going to pull more blood towards it. And so that's going to mean that the dominant stream of blood flow, you know, of, of, of for the for the clot to be carried is going to be towards it. So it'll pull the clot towards it. So you'll see that. Um, now, uh, th there is a pattern in terms of the facial weakness. You know, if you break up the face into a half and then, you know, you have sort of a, 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 another a horizontal line where you, you, you kind of split it uh, above and below, um, paying attention to, to, to the dysfunction on that can also, you know, further localize where that representation uh, 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 is, you know, in the system. Because, I, you know, you got to think about the brain as part of the CNS, right? And the CNS is the central nervous system, which is brain and spinal cord, right? And then the nerves go out. And so, you know, any that that representation, that homunculus man, um, you know, gets transmitted into these little cables, right? And these cables go down and eventually go to the, your spinal cord and then they become that peripheral nerve and then, you know, the nerve down your hand and then the nerve to your, you know, so you can localize where the dysfunction is uh, based on paying attention to some of these things. But um, in general, that's how strokes can can uh, can cause a facial weakness is because there are these representations of of uh, of our function be it the face uh or, or the body on the brain and whenever you know whenever the blood flow to that part uh goes out then then you have that manifest now the a stands for arms uh weakness or strength you talked about how sudden some of these symptoms happen so this would be something that suddenly you're weak or or you lose strength yeah, you know I, I mean fast is a nice acronym right because it sounds uh good right uh because it, it really stresses uh the need to 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 um to present to the to the hospital immediately to get this care which is a big big critical factor there are other type there are other things like i think 5s for stroke or some other other stuff that that have people have promoted but you know uh, you know, it, it should be arm and leg, you know, because it should be limb, really, you know, um, because, you know, you can have strokes that just go to the leg. Uh, and that's, a, you know, pretty characteristic of a pipe that is located in the area of the leg. So you can get strokes where it's suddenly the leg is weak. And I don't mean a leg, you know, like, oh, my knee and it buckles with pain. I mean, like a leg that goes, you know, weak in an appreciable sense where it it becomes heavier. You can't move it. Uh, uh, that kind of thing. That, so that's that feels, an entity. Let me ask you: Does that feel differently than when your leg falls asleep because you sat on it? Yes. In a particular yes. way. Okay. Yes, because that means you know when your leg falls asleep, it will have a character that localizes it in the CNS, right, in the system to the nerve, right, and not necessarily to the brain. Um, and so that's the whole idea is, is you can say, oh, well, this was a compression, right? There's a compression because I slept, you know, sort of like the funny bone, right? You're sitting on an armchair and then your arm goes numb, but it doesn't go all numb. It goes numb in a part of the hand, a part of the arm, because it's now that, you know, that map of the hand and arm that's that has a distribution of nerves. You know, in the same way that the arteries sort of branch and distribute to brain, the nerves branch and distribute to sort of skin and muscle in those areas. And so you can localize um, by paying attention to, to that point. But essentially, you know, getting back to, to what you were saying is, yeah, it's a sudden uh, change in your ability to use the arm or a sudden change in your ability, like we're sort of broadening it to use your, your, your leg, you know? Um, but that's what the arm is referring to. Now that can be a spectrum of, you know, paralysis uh, which is, you know, I, you know, which has degrees, you know, when I think of paralysis, I think the person cannot move this limb, they cannot, you know, move it at all, or maybe they can move it anti-gravity, but without any resistance, or maybe they can move it, but it's not quite where, what it should be. And that means it's a little bit weaker than full strength or significantly weaker than full strength, you know, uh, or maybe it's just a flicker. And so, so there are these, there's this way that, that we grade it, but it is a sudden subtraction in that direction. That's a minus. It's not a plus. It's not like a stroke is going to make you feel stronger. 
the, the it's it's good that you brought up this point about the tingling and the numbness because a stroke typically won't give you a positive symptom and a positive symptom is one where it sort of generates a sensation you know um so it's rare for a stroke to basically give you you know this tingling feeling uh you know uh, it will it, if that happens it'll be you know further down the course of a typical stroke you know uh, you know, I'm thinking of some some rare entities, you know, obviously, the more, you know, the more the, the rules uh, or the lines can get blurred, uh, which is why it's important to sort of err on the caution when we're talking about this system, the CNS, you know, uh, but in general, you know, it's it's uh, it's a negative symptom. So sudden subtraction of function. Uh, there's your sign. Go to the emergency room. So, under in terms of speech, what are some of the symptoms tied to that? Because that's the S in fast would be speech. Yeah. yeah, and so you know, speech I think is a is a good is a good one to include on the on the fast um, because uh, because you can broaden speech to to really include the concept of language. You know, um, so so when I think about a speech dysfunction, you know, if we were thinking about it classically, then you know, speech would just really be limited to sort of the production. Uh, of the words, uh, and not necessarily the generating of those uh, words from the thoughts, you know, into uh, a transmission, right? Uh, um, uh, you know, vocally. So, so you know, you're basically talking about the muscles of the mouth and the tongue that help you form speech, right? Uh, be having weakness in them, and if there's that weakness there, uh, then you're going to have sort of a difficulty pronouncing certain things. And so, I, I, you know, I do this on rounds, and and some patients laugh at me because I isolate the sounds. Um, to try to get an idea of where it's weighted um, more. And, you know, obviously a speech therapist would be the perfect person, obviously, to talk about this in stroke care uh, uh, because it's it's such an important um, uh, piece of of their rehabilitation is the, is the speech therapy. But you can break it down into sort of the palate, you know, the tongue, and then the lips. And then you sort of, sort of isolate these sounds, you know, la, 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 ma, 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 ka, ka, ka. And then you're looking for clarity. Uh, separation, uh, you know, and then you can kind of pick up uh, if there's uh, some deficit there. And then you always kind of control for, you know, does the patient need dentures, so on and so forth. And then at the end of the day, you know, the patient knows their speech uh, the, the best. So you ask. Uh, so that's a speech disturbance. I call that dysarthria, difficulty articulating, you know. And then there's the language part of it, which, you know, you know, people will say is aphasia. So language in, in, impairment. Oh, language impairment really has to do with the language center in the brain proper. So, which is a separate part of the brain than sort of the muscles of the mouth. You know, this is really just sort of the generating uh, center of the, so my thoughts go to the center and then that's this center is going to give me fluency, you know, uh, and, and ability to sort of uh, demonstrate comprehension. Uh, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so, uh, so that broadens to me, like the production of, of sort of, sort of, I can't find my words, word finding difficulty, you know, sort of, a, you know, frustrating because it feels like I can't communicate my thoughts. That's part of speech. Rarely you can have a speech disturbance where the patient just speaks gibberish, um, but it sounds almost like a foreign language. Uh, you know, or, 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 or some sort of like, you know, you know, random, uh, uh, uh prosody of speech being, um. Intact, so there the musicality of speech is there, so it sounds like a real thing, but it has no content, uh, and it, and it really you can't generate anything from it. Uh, but the person's musicality of speech is there, so it's sometimes it, you know classically it would get diagnosed as a psychiatric problem. If that happens suddenly, that's a language problem. That's a different kind of speech disturbance. So 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 speech can be language and production of speech from a a, a motor standpoint. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back to talk about stroke diagnosis and treatment options with Dr. Hesham Massoud after this short break. Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Hesha Massoud, a stroke specialist who's an assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology at Upstate. We discussed the symptoms of stroke, and now we're turning to diagnosis and treatment. So when someone arrives at the hospital with a possible stroke, how do you go about determining uh, whether it's a stroke and what type of stroke it is? Yeah, I think the first step is um, you know, you get you get a little bit of the exam, uh, and a lot of that is is in the field. 
from these uh um you know um scores that 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 the EMS uh, uh frontline healthcare workers get uh where they're sort of assessing versions of fast you know maybe i uh, you know adding an i deviation or a a, a problem uh, with you know sort of awareness of one side of the body as being reflective of a certain type of stroke which which really means a larger territory of of potential uh damage or 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 threat of damage um and so so you're getting that from the uh, pre-notification and then the resources are really uh prioritized towards setting you on one of two paths and that's either the pathway of um you know the 80 percent of strokes which are really a lack of blood flow problem uh, or the 20% of strokes, which are something burst or something leaked, this is blood, um, and so that's a separate care path. And that that's really the CAT scan we talked about. So, you know, you come in, you have, you, you know, there's a pre-notification, and then you go straight to CAT scan, and then that that sort of puts you in one of two categories. Um, when you're in uh, the, 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 the majority of stroke category, uh, then there's an exam that we do at the bedside called the NIH stroke scale, which is kind of a nice way to give points to certain parts of the brain function. Anytime we're using sort of like these scores as a surrogate uh, for um, um, how much the brain is involved, you know, there's going to be limitations. There's going to be parts that are neglected, so on and so forth. So. At the end of the day, it's the neurologist's bedside exam that matters because then they can sort of fill in the blanks or fill in the gaps that these scores have, uh, which is why when there's a stroke, we have our neurology uh, stroke team uh, led uh, uh, team sort of run it, uh, running running it in the same way that you would run a code blue, right? You know, instead of it being the threat of loss of life in a code blue, it's th threat of loss of function and independence in a stroke uh, code. Um, and so, so it's the same, it's the same, um, um, uh, emergency type, uh, uh, situation and that's led by the neurology stroke team. They come in, they do their exam, but essentially you can, you can gather this basic data. That's very quick through this scale and then communicate it to non neurology providers, uh, non neurology healthcare uh, providers and doctors. Um, and, uh. And uh, and then that can you know sort of give you an idea of if is this a stroke of a large territory or a small territory, and then the neurologist can tell you the stroke neurology uh, person who's at the bedside can do oh yeah is this one of these classic strokes that are of this entity that represent in this interesting and atypical way but is well characterized or is this actually a large territory that's presenting in a subtle way because of these other things that I'm able to appreciate at the bedside. You know, uh, and 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 a big part of their job at the at the, the stroke team is also in synthesizing this information um, from the scan. So they read their own scans because, as you can imagine, the time is such that you you know you can't wait on uh, on on another provider to to see uh, on another you know doctor or whoever to to see the scans, interpret them, and then call you back. That happens as a redundancy almost uh, because the the stroke team has to make these decisions faster than that um uh you know because you know the brain dies quickly um and so so that's that's the that's of interest you know so uh so there's this you know there's this rapid thing that's happening where your your brain is being evaluated in terms of its clinical manifestation in terms of what the pictures are showing that categorizes you in different ways uh and then based on the time point there may or may not be a drug that is going to be uh, uh applicable uh, and then the candidacy for that drug is then evaluated again very quickly and in parallel to these other processes. You know, it's not like this happens and then we go to the next train stop. No, it's like these things are all happening in parallel and then they sort of converge at the time point that's shortest uh, when you can sort of pass the reasonable level of certainty that this is a stroke. And so, you know, I think a big part of the game in stroke um, is is to is to realize that there are going to be strokes uh, that are treated from the clot busting drug standpoint uh, that that may may not be uh, turn out to be strokes. And that's because, uh, you know, this is a system where um, you can't take any chances and, and, and you have to err on the side of caution. And thankfully, in those instances, when it's not a stroke and you receive the drug, there's really almost a 0% risk. So, um, so that's why that's a that's a big that's a big point that that we always stress to our trainees. You yeah. and I have talked about clot busting medication before TPA. 
um, yeah. which was approved, I guess, since the late 1990s. But now there's yeah. a new medication that's gaining traction among stroke specialists. Can you tell us about it? Well, it's like it's interesting because it's like new old, you know, it's old new, you know. Uh, so Tenecteplase uh, has been studied, uh, you know, like for 15 years in stroke um, and, and has been and has been widely used in non neuroscience specialties, you know. Um, and so there's there's a lot of experience with tenecteplase. Um, so tenecteplase is, is similar to to alteplase, which is the TPA drug, in that it sort of works on you know. So clotting is a big is 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 primarily these two big variables that that combine together to form these plugs um, in terms of what clots are made up, and that's platelets, you know, and that's why you know people get aspirin or Plavix or whatever. Uh, and then there's the fibrin uh, piece, which has to do with the clotting uh, mechanism. Um, and so the fibrin, uh, it, this is what, you know, this, these drugs sort of work on that fibrin and that's what allows, you know, things to get attached and cross link and really organize a clot in a way. So if you can break down those cross linking fibrin strands, uh, then you can, you know, reopen the blood flow. And so tenecteplase does that, uh, it, working on that system as, as TPA does. What's interesting about tenecteplase uh, that's that's uh, you know the, the big advantage is, is that it has sort of you know um, a little bit more specific in action on that on that fibrin than TPA does. So it's an even more of a special you know like a fibrin specialist is how I would uh, call it, and and it and it works a little bit longer um, as you know, as as sort of manifested by the 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 half life you know the time it takes for for half of it to to drop you know in the system. So that's longer than 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 TPA. So it, so it works longer and it's more specific. Uh, so that's an advantage. And then the other advantage is that um, you don't have to run it for as long. Um, so in TPA, uh, you know, you have to give a bolus. A bolus is essentially a, a, a percentage of the drug that's given over a minute. Um, you know, so that's a pretty rapid administration of the drug intravenously. And then there's the remainder, sort of 90% of this drug that's sort of infused slowly over an hour. Uh, and you can imagine having a drug that's a clot buster that's infusing over an hour in the critical portion of your care. There are things that could go wrong, like, you know, maybe bleeding at a puncture site somewhere. Now you have this drip going, we got to pause the drip. You know, so on and so forth. So it's sort of a clunky thing in general in 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 medical care to deal with quote unquote drips. That's kind of like an ICU level care. Um, so not having to give a drip is a big um, advantage, especially in centers which are going to like transfer the patient somewhere. You know, not having to put someone on a drip for a car ride is kind of nice um, because you can imagine managing a drip in the hospital. It's complicated. Uh, imagine what it must be like uh, in the car ride potentially. Now we do it pretty safely. I'm just saying, but this is an opportunity for improvement. Uh, and so tenecteplase is a bolus only drug, uh, so you don't have to give the drip. So that's the advantage. And so now there's this accumulating data, um, uh, which is giving us um, suggestion that hey, not only is it you know uh, uh, potentially as you know not only is it as safe uh, as TPA, it may even be better. At you know, um, breaking down some of the biggest, baddest clots, you know, we call these large vessel occlusions, which are the clots that you actually have to oftentimes physically retrieve, um, you know, either sucking it out or using a, a device that we've talked about in the past where you ensnare it and then and slowly retract it and, and withdraw it out of the body. So these are big, bad clots. And this is a drug that does that potentially better than. Uh, TPA does. It doesn't need a, a a drip. It's only a bolus. It works longer. It's more specific. And then there are two doses that were studied, and the lower dose works apparently just as well as the higher dose. So now there's this adoption in the stroke um, a community in hospitals, um, and and there's some pretty pretty big uh, hospitals, uh, you know, in in the south that that have, have you know talked about their experience and their safety profile. Um, and so it's actually being, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's in it's it's getting admin, you know, into the guidelines and things like that. Um, so so uh, so that's the that's the big I think big news on the clot busting front. Um, you know, like I said, new old news or old news, you know, but sort of a new application. Um, uh, you know, I think more of an innovation in terms of just uh, utilizing a drug that that uh, maybe is a little bit more convenient. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Hesham Masood. He's an assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology at Upstate. 
I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Barry Peters lives in Durham and teaches in Raleigh, North Carolina. He uses a medical visit to capture a beautiful childhood memory and perhaps aid in his own healing in the lovely poem, Body Surfing. My brother and I wade into waves, child arms raised to the August sky, jumping our waists until the frigid tide ices our groins, waiting for the first big one to ride. Here it comes, he says, and we turn our backs to the horizon, undertow suck of sand and seaweed around our legs. I dive, briefly buoyed, cradled in cresting foam, then suddenly I'm thrust ahead, torpedoed toward land. Eyes closed, face scraping bottom, legs akimbo, somersaulting in aquatic thunder and darkness, until I'm dispatched, spitting salt water, prostrate on broken shells and wet beach. It wasn't the last time nature would have its way with me, I think, 50 years later, as I'm submarined into the MRI scanner, riding the waves toward another distant shore. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new tool for brain surgery and an overview of treatment options for men with enlarged prostates. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.